we've had so many different types of people on the podcast, you know, Gloria Walton, who has been doing social justice and environmental justice work for the entirety of her career. And this week, we're getting to speak with someone who is sort of new in this space in the sense that she has a new public presence, but has been dedicated throughout her career to working on things that are tangential to sustainability and environment. And it really brought up the topic of how we look to our elders and those who have come before us and both nod to them and the work that we're doing, but also acknowledge and appreciate what's come before. In the world of social media, it's very easy to forget that there's been a long history of really incredible activists. And often they don't get credit for the work that they're doing because often they started the work that they were doing long before it was easy to post something on Instagram about them and tag them. But they have done really foundational work that is guiding today's activists in a really fundamental way. And so that's why I'm really excited that this week I'm talking to Leah Thomas, who is also known as Green Girl Leah on Instagram. And she is an environmentalist, a writer, a creative. She is now an activist. And she's really working at the intersection of environment and justice. Yeah. I'm Melody Serafino. And I'm Erin Always. We're the co-founders of Number 29, a media relations agency that focuses on sustainability, design, and advancing social change. This is the Enough Podcast. We're here because we know we need to follow the leadership and wisdom of Indigenous and Black communities. And we've had enough of white savior environmentalism. I do remember the moment that I first became aware of her work. She created a graphic that took off in the wake of George Floyd's murder that was all about intersectional environmentalism. And she has since created the platform Intersectional Environmentalist that is empowering people to talk about how there is overlap and that we need to not look at racism in a siloed space or environmentalism in a siloed space, but how all of that is interwoven. And again, this is these frontline communities, the people who have both the wisdom and who are often the most affected by environmental degradation and pollution. And I love the work that she's doing. She's making it accessible and digestible. It's that graphic actually that really put her on the map because it was shared so many times and the work that she's doing with intersectional environmentalists is really about putting together resources to help other people get involved in this movement and take it off Instagram and into real life I think it's sometimes easy to forget that those who are doing the real work often don't have time to be on Instagram posting about it and I think she's really excited to bring a lot of people into this movement and to provide them with resources so that they can take real action. It's really about being inclusive and bringing people together and helping them to understand how so many of the issues that we have been talking about over the last year and beyond intersect. Yeah, I I love the work that she's doing and I'm very excited to hear this conversation. My aha moment, I guess, if I had to have like a Marvel origin story type situation. (laughs) would probably be when I started studying environmental science and um, that was my sophomore year in college and unfortunately it was the same time 
um, that the Ferguson uprisings happened in my hometown and was basically kind of arguably the start of the Black Lives Matter movement and having that happen and also studying environmental science. I was like environmental justice now and forever. I think that's actually a really critical story. I, you know, I'm curious because now you, there's a lot of conversation around the intersection of environmentalism and social justice, um, but that hasn't always been the case. So how did you sort of get into the role that you're in now? I know you've worked with everyone from the National Park Service to Patagonia. How did you end up deciding to create your own platform around these issues? Yeah, I feel really, really lucky because I got to work at some of my favorite organizations. Like I always wanted to be a National Park Service ranger. And in college, I found a program where I could intern for a couple of different national parks. I always really wanted to work at Patagonia. You know, they're a sustainable apparel manufacturer. That was my dream job. I didn't think I would get there until far, far in my career. But there happened to be an opening for an assistant position. And I just thought, you know, this would be a great way for me to learn about the ins and outs of the company. And I worked there and I got to see, you know, okay, there's so many incredible organizations that I look up to, but in each of these spaces, there are a lot of conversations about the importance of diversity and inclusion and what people could do differently. And I think it was very humbling to learn from organizations that are regarded as kind of the pillars of sustainability to see that they were also really trying to have a conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I think because I was in those spaces that I admired, I just started realizing that maybe I could create my own space because I really wanted to talk about intersectional environmentalism. And I was kind of forced to do so almost because the pandemic started, I was furloughed from my position, I had some time to think about my career choices, and it was kind of a sink or swim moment where I just thought, you know what, I'm planning on being on unemployment for the next three months, so I might as well give it a shot and see if I can start my own organization, and it ended up working out. It's so interesting that you say that this was during a time where you were furloughed, and it was obviously a really challenging time for so many different people over the last year. I'm curious how you think COVID impacted how we think about you know, climate change, the environment, some of the social justice movements that you're a part of. I mean, who would have thought, to be completely honest, like a global pandemic is what would make people start to view things through a more intersectional lens, but I guess it makes sense. Like if there's a lot of kind of traumatic things happening at once, like social injustice, you know, it's an election cycle, we're in a pandemic, there's so much uncertainty. I think our brains can only take so much until we start seeing connections between certain issues. And that's the thing with intersectional environmentalism, because it's connecting like social inequality to environmental inequality. And for some reason in my brain and maybe other people's brains, when we can see those intersections, it makes like 20 different problems seem like one problem with like multiple solutions. And maybe people are more willing to have these different conversations because we're seeing several different systems falling apart at the same time, reevaluating our healthcare system how we're going to do education, um, and then also looking at the environmental crisis and so many different social issues that were popping up and maybe just kind of saying, you know what, there's a lot going wrong right now, but there's so many solutions. And I think that's why these conversations really ignited for intersectional environmentalists because it wasn't just about the doom and gloom. There's a lot of excitement about the solutions that are available if we do take an intersectional approach. 
No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there is something about kind of finding the way to put these puzzle pieces together that almost felt hopeful, even though it felt like obviously so much needed to be changed, like so much needed to be rebuilt. I would love to hear from you a little bit. You started this platform called the Intersectional Environmentalist, and it's a resource hub. But can you explain what it is and how it's helping people, where people can find more information about it and sort of what is the call to action around that? Yeah, absolutely. So last year, and I had never had this happen before, maybe one day I'll process it, but going viral online is such an interesting situation. You were saying earlier, like, you're like, I saw you everywhere. And I was like, it was scary, (laughs) but it was also really cool. And it's kind of like, I always say that Eminem song that's like, you got one shot, one opportunity. So that was just always playing through my head, like take every interview, do everything. And I was just really kind of fed up, not going to lie, with the environmental community because there are a lot of people that I went to protest with for this, like issues that aren't small, but like to protect endangered salmon. And they were being, you know, really quiet when it came to protecting, you know, endangered people. So I made a graphic that said environmentalists for Black Lives Matter. And I also um, had what I thought intersectional environmentalism meant. So I typed up a definition of, okay, this is what intersectional environmentalism is to me. And then I made an intersectional environmentalist pledge, which basically had action steps that people could take if they wanted to be an environmentalist that cared about Black Lives Matter. So I didn't really expect much from that. I posted it on Instagram. I had about 10,000 followers at the time. And then it was just being shared by the internet. A lot of environmentalists that I guess felt really similarly were saying, you know, I want to take action, but I didn't know that I could take action. I didn't know that I didn't need permission. I want to be an intersectional environmentalist. So then just that topic started to trend and people were kind of asking like, well, what is intersectional theory by Kimberly Crenshaw? How does that relate to environmentalism? Like, Leah, you posted this post, so what do we do now? So it was really interesting, especially because, I don't know, I didn't think that it was a moment that would change my life or even change the way that a lot of people perceive environmentalism. But again, it's a community effort. So with intersectional environmentalists, the thought behind it was to show people that there's a long history of intersectional and diverse advocacy for the protection of both people and the planet. So we really just wanted to create a community. We had 20 council members when we started of environmental activists and educators from diverse backgrounds. And our goal was to amplify each other's work and all of the work that you know, wasn't always represented in environmental textbooks. And we did that through social media, compiling resources, directing people on what to read, what to watch, who to support, how to get involved. And it was kind of our way as um, primarily environmentalists of color to reclaim our narrative and really just take up space and not ask for permission. And I'm really thankful that hundreds of thousands of people decided to come along with us on that journey. And it's a website and there's an Instagram feed as or Instagram profile as well. And you said, you know, you're celebrating the one year anniversary of this resource hub. How has it evolved since you started it? Yeah, so initially we're very art focused. So I guess you can call it like artivism is the word that I'm learning. So yeah, when we started, we were doing a lot of like art prints that were like protect people and planet, all that kind of stuff. Over time, we've been able to bring on researchers so they can, you know, have different nuanced takes on it. And then we can synthesize that information um, on social media or our website. 
we have a new website now, which has a resource hub where we're trying to compile all that information. We're really excited for in real life events that are going to be happening. We're launching a program called IE School, which is basically going to be like free lectures and opportunities for people to learn about intersectional environmentalism. And then I guess one spoiler alert is we are coming out with our first publication, an online environmental justice magazine, which is going to have a Y2K early 2000s theme because Gen Z is apparently really into the early 2000s. And it's going to be a magazine with like data and research and just really cool art about environmental justice. And are you doing this by yourself or do you have a team that's working with you on this? Okay, I have the most wonderful team. Um, our co-founders are Dee Dee, Sabs, and Phil, and they've been with us since the beginning. Something that was a challenge was a lot of our employees had come from volunteer opportunities that they enjoyed, but we also, as a largely people of color um, based platform, we want to make sure people are being compensated for the work that they're doing. Um, so luckily we've had, so for example, Tazo, which is a tea company, they decided to invest in us about $50,000, which was a lot. It is a lot for us um, to be able to pay our team for a little while. Um, so we were able to bring on eight interns who were working part-time so we could pay everyone starting at around $21 an hour. So we have a team currently of about 15 people. We've also been really blessed to have schools that also believe in our message of wanting to, you know, compensate people for their emotional labor. We don't want to do unpaid internships if we don't have to. So schools have been able to pay the salaries of students that have been able to work with us. Um, but as we're transitioning to be a nonprofit and have our fiscal sponsor, we're exploring the idea of volunteers, maybe, because a lot of people want to get involved. But we also want to make sure that they feel really fulfilled in the work that they're doing. But yeah, we've had a great team of people that come in and out. And we've also had a lot of really incredible mentors that have tried to teach us how to just do this because it's really hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're learning in real time and it seems like things are just moving so quickly for you. And you're being so thoughtful about how you care for your team, which I always think about environmentalism and sustainability as this very comprehensive mindset where it is not just about the materials or the the action, but it's also thinking about the team and the people behind it and making sure that they're cared for. Yeah. You've worked obviously with some really big brands. I think a lot of brands are trying to hop on this bandwagon. They know they need to do something. They don't always know the right way to do things. They don't always approach it in the right way. How would you advise a company that is trying to better understand their role in this movement? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that starting internally is really good because I think a lot of times, you know, people want to jump to PR and external facing things, which is really incredible. Um, but don't forget about your own people and also making sure when you're looking at diversity and inclusion, like what does leadership look like within the company? Like, how are you creating space for your BIPOC employees? Are you paying them well? I think something that I saw from very well-intentioned environmental organizations that I've had the privilege of being, you know, in conversation with is they want to take action with diversity and inclusion immediately. And I love that fire, but sometimes they direct it at their employees of color who might just be like a graphic designer. And they're like, hey, can you make a statement on diversity and inclusion for us with completely outside of your workload, but like, just do it. And it's like, you know what, what are some ways that we can innovate where 
whatever the group is, whatever marginalized group it is, if they are investing, if you want them to invest in your company outside of your like job description, then that's worth investing in. So maybe that looks like a bonus. Maybe that looks like, you know, providing support or maybe hiring a consultant, you know, externally. I think once those internal things are aligned, those external things feel a lot easier. And PR even feels a lot easier because your employees can speak to it, you know, from their heart and it's not something you have to make up. And then in addition to that, I think a big learning lesson of last year, a lot of companies were making these donations, which was amazing. But sometimes it was only to like three organizations that are the most well-known. And that's amazing. They definitely need funding, but there's so many grassroots efforts or even just individual activists. They might not be nonprofits, but that shouldn't mean that you can't send a care package to an activist who's making a difference. Um, So I think something I'd like to see moving forward for companies that really want to do something is invest in the grassroots efforts that are happening because they're going to make a really big difference as well. Yeah, I think it all comes back to taking a beat to just understand before you jump to to sort of put a stake in the ground on something. I think because things were happening really quickly on social media, companies were feeling this pressure to make a statement, commit to a cause, donate to something. And it's like, okay, we know this organization is credible because we've heard it and everybody else is posting about it. So we'll just donate, you know, $100,000 here, which to your point is lovely and wonderful. But there may be a million other deserving either individuals, activists, organizations that a fraction of that donation could go so much farther for them. We live in this like on-demand world where we feel like if we don't do something within 24 hours somehow it's not impactful but when you're talking about these like huge systemic issues that doesn't happen overnight and if you want to do it well you've got to actually understand the context for the situation and I think that that's it's very easy to get caught up in that because people feel like oh if I'm not saying something then I'm not doing something if I'm not donating something then people think we're not on board with this and it's like actually maybe just do the work for a little bit you know, we need to take the time to process this in a way that's actually going to make a meaningful difference. So I, I really appreciate you you saying that. Can you tell me a little bit about your book? Yes, and this is the first time that I'm talking about it on a podcast, which is pretty cool. Ooh, and, um, and enough exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> we'll take it. <laughs> yeah, so it's coming out next April, so during Earth Month. So we have some time, but honestly, it's really just like my love letter to everyone who just supported intersectional environmentalism becoming what it is and providing a little bit more context because context is so important. Like the story of IE didn't just start with that viral moment on the internet. There are generations of environmental justice advocates who have been doing this work for quite some time. Um, I'm really excited because I get to break down like black feminist ideologies and intersectional theory, what it is and why it's so important to me. Um, And I pulled in the voices of over 20 of my eco-friendly friends that are in the book. So I can't say too much, but basically it's kind of intersectional environmentalism 101 and really just advocating that people don't erase, you know, the voices of people of color who have created things like intersectional theory, environmental justice, etc. And it's really an argument that Intersectional environmentalism is environmentalism in its truest form, and if environmentalism doesn't advocate for the protection of marginalized people, then maybe it doesn't stand for justice at all in the first place. So yeah, that's a little bit about the book. Had you always wanted to write a book? 
Yeah, so I've always wanted to write a book, and originally, I mean, that's kind of what I do on the side. Like, I love, you know, writing and dabbling in op-eds and all that stuff. Um, but so I guess three years ago, such a random story. I was thinking about writing a book about destigmatizing cannabis. As it's legalizing, I reached out to Present Perfect Lit, which is a really awesome publisher, and we're working on this project, maybe considering it, but you know, I said I didn't work out, and I was like, you know what, maybe I need some more time to talk about this subject. I'm definitely not an expert. So I was thinking about other things that I could potentially write about, and then I wrote a piece for Vogue about why every environmentalist should be anti-racist, and I really just wanted to... I saw and read that piece, and everybody else should as well. (laughs) Thank you. We'll put it in the show notes. We'll put it in there. Um, Yeah, so I wrote that, and I was like, I feel like I just need to write more about this subject, and it was really cool that people were reading my writing. So I reached back out to Present Perfect Lit. I was just so in love with the fact that you know, it was this really amazing, like, woman-started literary agency that supported me when I didn't have a following, was interested in writing a book with me about a super nuanced topic, like, the year after I graduated from college, and I just felt like I was really in good hands, so I reached out with an SOS, like, I really want to write a book, like, please believe in me. Um, So, yeah, and they did, and they were my biggest advocates. That's great, Um, and I love that story of just reaching out and saying like I'm here I want to talk about this thing it's like so many people have the dream of writing a book and you're actually doing it and all through your own volition so that's really admirable and wonderful um we think about all the time just how we in our own lives can make better choices do you have any tips for people at home who you know want to take that one small step to we say to unfuck the planet but I think in this case it's really to um think about the intersection of social justice and environmentalism, I mean, what can, what can people do? I would say the first step is really to get curious because there's so many things to learn. Um, and sometimes, you know, people might get a little fin- offended or a little ego bruised if someone's like, Google it or like, learn about it, read about it. But to me, it's not even like a, an ego thing. It's just like, oh my God, I'm never going to know everything but I can get started on that journey today. And I think with intersectional environmentalism, the first step is truly just reading about or researching or getting tapped into the work that's already been done and getting that context. So I'm like, okay, what is environmental justice? How can I learn from, you know, BIPOC narratives and LGBTQ plus IA narratives about what environmentalism means to so many different people. I studied environmental science and policy in school, and to be completely honest, there was no required course on environmental justice, intersectional theory, sociology, any of that. And there are a lot of environmental programs where it's the same. So you can even get an environmental degree and walk away not knowing about it, which I think is silly. I don't know if that sounds like a cop-out answer, but I think the first step is just to get curious and learn because that'll give you context when you approach your advocacy because if you go into it knowing like wow this is a centuries-long fight you know of land sovereignty and food sovereignty and all these things it'll make it even I don't know you can approach it with more context when you're ready to be an advocate in real life well and I think that it also is it's a nod to those who have been fighting this fight for a really long time I mean this isn't something that just started 
during COVID because everybody was on social media. And I think that's really important just to acknowledge the people who have come before. Are there any resources that you found yourself coming back to time and time again? Are there certain activists that you admire and follow or um, you know, certain books that have really helped inform your own thinking? Hmm. I, I guess to name a few, there's a book called Black Nature, which is like a compilation of poetry about um, the African-American experience with environmentalism. Very cool. All We Can Save, obviously, um, is an incredible book. You know, I did a book giveaway just because I was like, everyone needs to have this book. This isn't sponsored. No one told me to do that. But please read All We Can Save. You know, got to support um, someone else who is just like a character and I adore, even though she's yelled at me on Twitter a couple times, in all good <laughs> faith, is Bernice Miller-Travis. She is an environmental justice OG. You need to learn about her work. Honestly, she's incredible. And we also have a reading list of hers on recommended readings that's coming out on Intersectional Environmentalists. And that reading list will also be in my book. In addition to that, braiding sweetgrass is really amazing, and particular people that have been really helpful. Um, Why were you getting yelled at at Twitter on Twitter, by the way? Well, <laughs> it was in the nicest way, but I think you know I really come into things where I'm just like, ah, I'm so passionate about this, and it was just making sure to like always honor our elders who have been doing this work for quite some time. And the thing is, women in particular when you're looking at intersectionality and you know being a woman and being a woman of color oftentimes their narratives are not shared so i was kind of going into it like oh my god environmental justice is real and she's like duh <laughs> so in the <laughs> in the nicest way like we've talked and we're we're close so but yeah i needed a little you know girl i've been here and i was like i see you so now we're all good yeah, I love that. Well, it's also that's the nice thing about social media is then you get connected to people like that who you may not come across otherwise, and you can learn from them and um, have that dialogue. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about like the, the small things that people can do in their own lives. You seem like a person who's hopeful about sort of where we're headed. Is that fair to say? Do you, are you hopeful? What's so wild is I was just thinking about this. So after I'm done with editing my book, the next focus of just research that I want to do is on like hope and optimism because I, I am kind of a pretty optimistic person, but I think in a lot of ways, I'm like, where is this coming from? I think it's a survival tactic that a lot of people have, especially from marginalized backgrounds because it's like, oh my God, the world is so terrible. Like I need to reclaim joy and hope for myself because I deserve it, you know? And I feel like it wasn't always like that, especially in the activism space. You feel like you need to like martyr yourself for the cause and exhaust yourself and not take care of yourself. Then I started thinking about all these principles of sustainability and how I'm supposed to apply that to myself and how each of us should apply that to the way that we care for ourselves and our communities. We need to practice self-sustainability um, to be healthy, to do the work that we love the most. So yeah, I guess I'm kind of optimistic about things and it's because I feel like that's what keeps me going. And I think a lot of people are motivated not by shame, or that's not a healthy motivation source, but thinking about the possibilities of the future and the innovation that exists, like I feel like that gets, you know, that gets the people going. 
are there certain um, solutions that you are seeing or things that really get you excited? I'll say random things in no like coherent order, but um, bio-based plastics make me really excited. Um, so knowing that you can make plastic not from polyester, lovely. Um, I get really excited about biodegradable packaging. I got a package the other day with packing peanuts that I could eat. And then other- <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. It was pretty cool. And other things that make me really excited is just, I don't know, the next generation of people. I'm kind of Gen Z adjacent. You know, I'm in my 20s, but I'm definitely a millennial. But seeing the way that they talk about intersectionality, it just makes sense. Like, there's not as much resistance or even topics like climate change. The younger generation, regardless of their political ideologies, like, understand more so than previous generations that we need to save our home planet. So studies that I really adore, there's one, it's called The Honest Generation by Futera, which is my favorite, like, sustainability, like, marketing. We love the Futera team. Yes. We've worked with them in there. Yeah, they're so great. (laughs) Shout out to Futera. Love Love them. Um, And they have this study, I think it's called The Honest Generation, and the whole thing just makes me hopeful because when they survey like Gen Z and millennials they really really care about different like mission and values and things like that so that whole study makes me really hopeful and I think people should check it out because I reference it all the time that's great and thank you for those resources I I think also with Gen Z I mean they've grown up with the conversation around climate change their whole lives I was at an event pre-COVID during climate week here in New York and it was with business leaders and you know, young act high school age environmental activists talking about like, listen, if you're not going to do things that align with our values, we're just not going to buy your products. Like it doesn't matter that much to us. We don't need to own something from your brand. We can barter with a friend. We can DIY something. We can buy something secondhand or we can just not make a purchase at all. And we're fine with that, which is a very different mindset from even when I grew up where it was more of a sort of materialistic generation of just having things to have them versus really understanding where your purchase dollars were going. And I think they're asking they're asking questions that are really forcing brands to have to be more transparent. And I love that about them. That makes me really happy because I feel the same way. And I think something that I loved about 2020 was the rise of people supporting like BIPOC owned businesses or sustainable businesses. And I know like social media following isn't necessarily, you know, representation. I don't know how much these companies are making, but I've just seen like small women owned BIPOC owned sustainable brands like just grow so much in the last year because people are doing exactly what you said. They're saying, you know what? I have the choice. There are a ton of brands that are sustainable. They care. Slow fashion. I'm going to buy from them. So I hope that switch makes other corporations, even if their intentions aren't what they need to be, I hope it makes them like shift a little bit because people are, you know, taking the power back into their own hands. I'd be curious, Futera, maybe they can do a study on that, like how brands in 2020 that did really lead with that sustainability messaging or with a BIPOC founder or, you know, how they did in relation to other brands. I think 2020 was also a year where we realized how much we missed community and the community businesses that we supported in our own neighborhoods. I hope that we remember that. I hope that we we take that with us and we continue to want to support some of these individuals and some of these small businesses who 
you know, really serve our communities in, in really important ways that I don't think some of us quite understood until it was taken away from us. Is there anything else that you're working on that we can share? Hmm, what am I working on? Um, you know, I'm honestly just working on trying to get back out in the world and volunteer. So this isn't really an ending note, but if anyone has any volunteer opportunities that you know of, in my area feel free to send me a dm because i just i really want to get back out there and i don't know i've been online for the last year so i'm really just looking forward to finding events to connect with people volunteer get involved all that stuff and it seems like a lot of people are on the same wavelength so maybe that's something that we can do over on ie or intersectional environmentalist have a little database so people can get back out there and make a difference and get some fresh air so Stay tuned for that. And also if anyone has resources for me to add to that project that I just created for myself, um, send me a DM. (laughs) Please do reach out to us and let us know because I would love to hear about those opportunities as well. Leah, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'm, yeah, I'm just super stoked to be working with you all. So, yay. I really appreciate what Leah talks about in terms of the woman who reached out to her to share the work that she had been doing for so long and maybe a bit more quietly or without this massive platform, but that she was so gracious in saying, yes, I acknowledge that this is a foundation that has been built and I am continuing this legacy in my own way. I also think, because I feel very strongly about this, that if someone comes into a large following or is a natural born storyteller and galvanizer we need to celebrate that and Leah so clearly falls into that category and I just want to recognize that because if she can bring new people into a space that has been built by others while also acknowledging that foundation that has been laid more power to her I just think it is so wonderful I completely agree. I think that this space needs inclusivity. It needs people who still have a lot of learning to do. And one of the things Leah says is that she is a lifelong learner. This Her learning is not done just because she has a platform now. The learning never ends. And I think we could all think a little bit more like that. And I think bringing more people into the conversation and finding those entry points for them is really important because no one wants to feel shamed. And No one is going to feel inspired if they're coming in feeling like they already don't know enough or they have nothing to add. They have no value in the conversation. It's really important to have more people feel like they can be a part of this and be a part of this change. I just want to talk about the idea of lifelong learner. The people who I most respect in my life are the people who remain curious. And I think that this can apply to the young who think they know everything, who come in and they're like, this is the way it is, and are so self-determined and immovable in some of their thinking that I think that's problematic. And I'm sure at times in my life, I was that person. But I also think that applies to those who are older and feel like they've learned everything there is to learn. The people around me where I just, you know, shouting out, Dave Barry, who is actually a real estate developer, but cares so much about the state of creation and how you create things responsibly. He is so eternally curious. And I, I, I think that that is the best attribute in a person. And I think Leah clearly has that in spades where she's saying she has her convictions, but is learning. 
what is the point of living if we don't keep learning? It just feels like a very sad existence if we're not curious about the world around us. That's like the best part of being alive is being able to have conversations and learn new things and make new discoveries. Enough is a podcast from Number 29 and Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by Zandra Ellen. Pineapple Street Studios executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Original composition by Hannes Brown. For more information on Leah Thomas, Intersectional Environmentalist, and Number 29, check out the links in our show notes. 